Well, my name is Tim Robertson. I'm one of the pastors here. It's a delight to be able to be back up in the pulpit again and, and to share the second installment of what will be a multi-installment read-through and study-through the book of Psalms. As a preface to Psalm 49 this morning, I want to pose a question. But as I do that, let me invite you, again, if you already have your Bible open, if not, then turn it on (laughs) or turn in it, either way, to Psalm 49. And as you do that, here's the question. Do you all know what today is? Come on now. I shared the answer with one of our elders. He's not, he's not speaking up now here. So, T- Today is Pentecost Sunday. Think about that. There are millions of people who profess allegiance to Jesus who already have been celebrating those in time zones ahead of us, who are coming behind us, who are celebrating the reality of Pentecost Sunday, seven Sundays after Resurrection Sunday. Uh, the... Hebrew Feast of Shavuot, or the Feast of Weeks, was traditionally celebrated 50 days after Passover. And this is what Jesus encouraged his followers to do, was to wait for Pentecost. The original Feast of Weeks commemorated God's gift of the law to Israel. Significant that the Feast of Pentecost now commemorates the giving of the Holy Spirit to His church. I'd like us just to very quickly, before we get into Psalm 49, I want to see if we can place ourselves back into that first century context. I love to do this kind of thing, get your imaginations working here. Imagine with me that we're part of that group of 120 that are, that are waiting for this feast coming up, Pentecost. Just ten days ago, we had been with Jesus face-to-face, and he had instructed us to wait for what the Father had promised. Now, mind you, we had struggled with doubt during those 50 days. Uh, We've even struggled with some uh, disbelief, even though Jesus made multiple encounters with us. He, He came and talked to us. He came and ate with us. He appeared before 500 people, the Apostle Paul says, at one sitting. And yet, uh, we still wrestle with that. But... Everything is about to change on this day, Pentecost Sunday, at this feast. Because the Holy Spirit that God had promised comes in powerfully in their midst, and thus the church gets born. Now, if I wasn't going to teach on Psalm 49, I think we would just distribute some cake. We'd celebrate the birthday of the church, and we'd give a benediction and all go home, right? But... I've got about another 37 minutes, so we're gonna, we're gonna go back into Psalm 49. But I, I think it's most conservative Baptist churches in this country don't have a clue about the importance, the significance of this day. But now you do. Now you do, right? And so 50 days from now on, 50 days after Resurrection Sunday, always think about this great gift that God has given to us, the Holy Spirit who magnifies the name of Jesus, and who works about this work of transformation in our hearts. And I'm trusting that he's going to do that this morning, that he's going to do a work of transformation in each of our hearts as we do a deep dive into Psalm 49. So let's read Psalm 49 again. I'm going to put it up on the screen behind me here so you can follow along there. Or if you picked up a talk sheet, it's printed on there. You can follow there. Or better yet, if if your Bible is open, or, or if, you're, if your smart device is turned on to Psalm 49, then you can follow along there. 
to the choir master, a psalm of the sons of Korah. Hear this, all peoples. Give ear, all inhabitants of the world, both low and high, rich and poor together. My mouth shall speak wisdom. The meditation of my heart shall be understanding. I will incline my ear to a proverb. I will solve my riddle to the music of the lyre. I want to stop right there because I want to share an illustration that is going to set up the next several verses that come. You all know the name Mark Cuban. Um, Those of you that are basketball fans, he's currently the owner of the uh, Dallas Mavericks. He's a self-made billionaire, created an online presence, sold it off, uh, has done some amazing things, has acquired uh, just, he's amassed immense uh, amount of wealth. Several years ago, he was asked on the uh, ABC News program 2020, he was asked this question. Do you feel that he who dies with the most toys wins? Hmm. What do you suppose Mark Cuban's answer was? Here it is. Quote, guys with the life they wanted win. That's all. Have I made myself and people around me happy along the way? So when it's all said and done, you know, if my epitaph is just a smiley face, I'm good to go. Really? Let's see what uh, the sons of Korah have to say in Psalm 49 about Mark's view of life. Verse 5. Why should I fear in times of trouble when the iniquity of those who cheat me surrounds me? Those who trust in their wealth and boast of the abundance of their riches. Truly, no man can ransom another or give thanks to God the, or give to God the price of his life. Then notice verse 8 is a bit of a parenthesis. For the ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice. That he should live on forever and never see the pit. For he sees that even the wise die. The fool and the stupid alike must perish and leave their wealth to others. Their graves are their homes forever. Their dwelling places to all generations. Though they called lands by their own names. Man, in his pomp, will not remain. He is like the beasts that perish. This is the path of those who have foolish confidence, even though after them people approve of their boasts. Selah. Like sheep, they are appointed for Sheol. Death shall be their shepherd. And the upright shall rule over them in the morning. Their form shall be consumed in Sheol with no place to dwell. I love verse 15. But God will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol, for He will receive me. Selah. Be not afraid when a man becomes rich, when the glory of his house increases. For when he dies, he will carry nothing away. His glory will not go down after him. For though, while he lives, he counts himself blessed, and though you get praise when you do well for yourself, his soul will go to the generation of his fathers, who will never again see light. Man, in his pomp, 
yet without understanding, is like the beasts that perish. This is the uh, fifth summer that New Life Church is, has been preaching through the Psalms, and this summer, hopefully by God's grace, we'll get all the way through Psalm 61. Uh, I want to share just a, a few brief things about the Psalms, about better understanding the Psalms, because I recognize that there are people in this room who may, maybe are not familiar with this, and even those of us that have been with, walking with the Lord for a long time, We've just been doing a study, a very long study in the book of Romans. Romans isn't Psalms, okay? Psalms isn't Romans. Psalms is very different. It's got a different feel to it, a different vibe to it, so to speak. Every psalm teaches us something about the character of God. But also, at the same time, every psalm teaches us about the posture of God's people who live in the midst of the tensions of this broken world. And the scope of topics throughout the Psalms are amazing. In fact, they're incredibly expansive. They include praise and lament and thanksgiving and penitence. And as is the case of this Psalm, wisdom. But also the foolish worldview of the wicked. There are Psalms that raise questions, even accusations directed toward God. There are curses. There are prophecies about a coming Messiah. There, uh, there is instruction. There is admonition. And the list can go on and on and on. Basically, though, the Psalms deal with authentic life issues that we hold in tension with a real world that's swirling all around us. Also, in the Psalms, we hear many different voices. We definitely hear the voice of God. We hear the voice of God throughout many of the psalms. But at the same time, occasionally you'll hear the voice of the psalmist as he is speaking to God. You'll also hear the voice of the psalmist as he's speaking to God's people, or even to his own soul, or to the wicked. We even hear the voice of the wicked themselves in an occasional psalm. In each voice, in every voice, though, we hear authenticity and sometimes uh, honesty, which, which stuns us, which, shock, which shocks us. Now, David wrote um, almost half of the 150 psalms that you have in your Bible. Solomon, his son, wrote two. Moses even wrote one. A man by the name of Asaph wrote 12. Ethan, Heman, they each wrote one. Today, we're going to look at a psalm of the sons of Korah. This was a hereditary guild of temple officials, and this is one of the 11 that has been attributed to them. When we sing through the Psalms, as we did this morning and as we'll do throughout the summer, something happens. Life, the pace of life gets slowed down, and our minds get engaged, but so do our hearts. Music does that, right? And it engages our emotions as well with the Psalm. These songs express both our prayers and our thoughts and our emotions to God, but at the same time, as they're doing that, they are forming our thoughts, our emotions, and our character as we sit or stand before God. As we sing the Psalms, God's Word gets embedded in our hearts, gets embedded through our minds. In fact, those of you that are musicians, you understand what I'm talking about. When you, when you can sing about something, it somehow bypasses uh, some normal things that happen in our brain, and it goes straight to the heart. And that's why I, I just love teaching and preaching through the Psalms, because uh, it, it's going to go right to the heart uh, 
as well as percolate through our minds. Now, you may have thought I was already doing this, but I'm going to invite you, I'm going to, I'm going to step out of the pulpit, so to speak, all right? And I'm going to invite you into Tim's classroom. We're going to step into a classroom just for a second. Uh, because it's important to understand, again, how the Psalms are structured. The Psalms, as we have them, were edited or arranged by a group of, of editors. In fact, within the 150 Psalms, the book of Psalms, there are actually five books. And you can see the structure there, 1 to 41, 42 to 72, and so on. Now, what's fascinating about each of those five books is that the last verse of uh, Psalm 41, the last verse of 72, the last verse of 89, 106, and 150, the last verse is always a benediction. There's a benediction at the end of each of those books. Uh, Psalm uh, the, book, the first book, Psalms 1 through 41, consists of 41 psalms. And notice the benediction. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel. And then you can see the rest uh, behind me. The same thing occurs in book 2 with a, a total of 31 psalms, followed by a much longer definition. Book 3 is 17 psalms with a very concise, very quick, very brief, blessed be the Lord forever, amen and amen. Book 4, 17 psalms with a little bit longer benediction. And then I'm kind of racing to get to book 5. The end of book 5 is fascinating because uh, Psalm 150, the six verses of Psalm 150, in and of themselves are a benediction. In fact, in those six brief verses, 12 times the psalmist encourages us. In fact, he he commands us. It's an imperative to, to praise, to give praise to God as a result of what they've just read. The result of what they've just heard. Now, what's interesting about these five books is this. It reminds us of something. It reminds us of the Torah. They're connected to the first five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. In other words, the, uh, the, 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 the Torah, which, by the way, the, that word Torah means law or instruction, In other words, the Psalms function as a sung Torah, and that's how they're arranged. So that God's people, the people of Israel, would have God's law in their their minds, but also, more importantly, in their hearts. This is God's law framed as an act of praise, as an act of worship as we sing through these. All right, I'm going to step back into the pulpit now, and we'll continue on. By the way, a shameless plug, if you'd like more teaching like that, we have an adult Bible class that meets during both hours on a Sunday morning. So that's the kind of thing we do in there. Oftentimes, a psalm like this one, Psalm 49, will have multiple themes. This one, though, I believe has one primary theme, one primary teaching. And here it is. Think wisely about death. Unlike those who trust in wealth, Because God has paid the ransom for our souls. Now, how do we do that? That's that's great, Tim. Thank you so much. I appreciate that. But how do we do that? Maybe a more important question is, why would we do this? Why would we even bother to think wisely about death? Well, we're going to see Psalm 49 answers those questions. So let's circle back into the text. Let's look at it again, and, and let's explore a little bit deeper into some of these verses. And I'm going to break the verses up into, 
into a, a handful of, uh, of sections here. And as I do that, for example, verses 1 to 4, I'm simply going to give you a statement for the section. Heed the wisdom of this psalm is the main idea in those four verses. Now, I'm not going to put the verses back up on the screen because I want you to see this for yourself right there with your Bible because you'll carry that Bible home or you'll carry that smart device home. I want you to see it right there so that it's, it's very clear to you not something that's simply up on the screen and left up on the screen. I don't want you to leave it on the screen. <laughs> I want you to take this with you as you go home. So, verses 1 through 4, we heed the wisdom of the psalm in order to think wisely. At first hearing this psalm, you may have thought, well, this psalm sounds more like a proverb than a psalm. Well, if, if I was giving out prizes today, I would give you a prize, because that's exactly what you should be thinking, because this is a wisdom psalm. That's the genre or the style of of literature that this is. And it's offering instruction to men, to you and me, rather than than praise or worship uh, to God. So it's very similar to Proverbs. And specifically in this psalm, the wise are warned against trusting in wealth. That's the wisdom of this psalm. Don't trust in the wealth of others, especially in light of the certainty of death. In these first four verses, we notice that there is a clear call to wisdom. Notice verse 1. Hear this. Give ear. And then verse 3. My mouth shall speak wisdom. The meditation of my heart shall be understanding. And then verse 4. I'm going to incline my ear. I'm going to bend my ear to a proverb. And I'm going to solve my riddle to the music of the lyre. I shared the first hour, I'll share it again. I, I, I love officing right next door to Taylor, our worship leader. Because oftentimes in the afternoon during the week, I can hear him, the walls are paper thin, I can hear him in there strumming on his guitar, processing some thought about God's Word, or putting uh, to music the truth of God's Word. I love that. He's In a sense, he is solving the riddle of wisdom to the music of his guitar, to the music of a lyre, which was a handheld harp. The psalmist, in fact, uses four words in these four verses to describe what he's after, to describe this, this elusive, to the world at least, concept of wisdom. He uses wisdom, he uses understanding, he uses the term proverb, and he uses the term riddle. Something else the sons of Korah, who are the writers of, these, of this psalm, something else they do is they employ a, a unique device It's very distinctive to Hebrew poetry. It's called parallelism. We're used to English poetry, right? Where the end of one line rhymes with the end of another line. Hebrew poetry doesn't do that. Instead, what it does is is it layers truth upon truth. And so the second line of a couplet will typically... um, embellish or describe the first line. Look at the example in verse 1. Hear all peoples, or, in other words, give ear all inhabitants. I want you to also notice right away that unlike last week, when Pastor David preached on Psalm 48, and that was all about Jerusalem, this is a clear call to the world, to the masses. This isn't just directed at Jews. This is directed to everybody, to the entire world. Notice other examples of parallelism. In verse 2, low and high is contrasted or compared with rich and poor. He says in verse 3, my mouth shall speak wisdom, or in other words, the meditation of my heart shall be understanding. Hebrew parallelism. 
I love uh, verse 4. I love this word solve. Um, it, it's the word literally that means to, to open up something for the first time. To open it up. Those of you that know me well, you know that I love to use a word called unpack. We're going to unpack Mark chapter 6 this morning, right? Um, that's essentially what the psalmists are saying here. They're, he's saying, I'm going to solve or I'm going to unpack. I'm going to open up this riddle and I'm going to do it as I'm strumming on my lyre. So we heed the wisdom of this psalm in order to think wisely. Let's look at the next uh, collection of verses, verses 5 through 9. We think wisely about death because human wealth is not sufficient to redeem our soul. That could be a revelation to our friend Mark Cuban. (laughs) Human wealth is not sufficient to redeem our soul. This, in fact, is the key question of Psalm 49. It's in verse 5. Why should I fear? In times of trouble, when the iniquity of those who cheat me surrounds me. That question is going to be connected a little bit later uh, to verse 15. And we'll, I'll, I'll hold you in, in suspense until we get to verse 15. But that question transitions us to the main point of the psalm, which is actually in verse 15. Verse 6 says, Those who trust in their wealth and boast of the abundance of their riches. Well, wealth is relative, Right? The abundance of uh, riches for one person may not be enough for me. How much is enough? Everybody's different. Wealth is relative. Wealth is also notoriously stable. Unstable, rather. Uh, Solomon, David's son, writes in Proverbs 23, Do not toil to acquire wealth. Be discerning enough to desist. Because when your eyes light on it, it is gone. For suddenly it sprouts wings, flying like an eagle toward heaven. That, I don't know about you, but that happens twice a month for me. Right? It's like, wait a minute, I thought today was payday. It, where, where, did, where did it all go? Right? But that's what wealth does. Wealth is relative, it's notoriously unstable. Plus, verse 7, no man can ransom another. It's assumed he can't ransom himself and he can't ransom another or give to God the price of his Life. It's a little bit unfortunate in, in the ESV translation that we're using this morning that it says ransom. It, literally, the word is redeem. If you've got a King James or a New American Standard, it says redeem. No man can, can redeem another. In other words, no man can, can pay the purchase price to buy someone out of their predicament or to buy myself out of my own predicament. Now, the price of his life is the term for ransom. They can't use their money to redeem themselves, and they can't use their money to send a substitute. Because human wealth is not sufficient to redeem a human soul. As I mentioned earlier, verse 8 appears to be a parenthesis. You can see that clearly. If you just read 7 and then follow it directly with 9, verse 9 completes the thought of verse 7. So in this parenthesis of verse 8, the ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice. It reminds me of something Jesus said. In Mark chapter 8, also in Matthew 16, Jesus said this, What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? The implicit answer by Jesus is nothing. Because there isn't anything. You can't accumulate enough wealth to redeem your own soul. Came across a, a headline from the British uh, Broadcasting Corporation 
about a, an article that was actually written a couple of years ago entitled this. So here's the headline. The super rich are injecting blood from teenagers to gain immortality. <laughs> well, as it turns out, um, over at that point in time, over 100 people had already participated in a clinical trial in a uh, San Francisco startup offering blood transfusions for older patients as an experimental attempt at rejuvenating the elder. And the Stanford-trained scientist who founded the clinic claimed that the initial results from his patients had been encouraging. In fact, I'm going to quote him. He said, it could help improve things such as appearance. That'd that'd be awesome. Or uh, diabetes, or heart function, or memory. He goes on to say this. I'm not really in the camp of saying this will provide immortality, but I think it comes pretty close, essentially. Wow. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and yet forfeit his own soul? And people were forking over large sums of money to have teenage blood transfused into their veins. Amazing to me. Well, verses 10 through 14 gives us a a stark reminder of why we should think wisely about death. And that is, death is a certitude. Death is 100% guaranteed. You can take that one to the bank, right? Look at verse 10. For he sees that even the wise die, the fool and the stupid alike must perish, and they leave their wealth for others. You can't take it with you. You can't take it with you. Although some would, like to, some would hope for that. Some would like to think they could. But that's the grand illusion. That's the grand illusion of wealth, of power uh, or prestige. Verse 11, people are even naming their dwelling places and calling lands after their own names. (laughs) The reality of that is that apart from a handful of archaeologists, few people are interested in the tombs of the rich. Verse 12 then serves as as a refrain... And it's repeated again in uh, verse 20 at the end. Man in his pomp will not remain. He is like the beasts that perish. That word remain literally means it speaks of having one night's overnight lodging. In other words, the, the sons of Korah are saying man in all of his glory, esteem, reputation, wealth, honor, can't even, can't even buy one night's overnight's lodging to prevent them from death. It, it just, it's not going to happen. Solomon, towards the end of his life, uh, gives a very negative description of this in Ecclesiastes chapter 3. Let me just read this for you. For what happens to the children of men and what happens to the beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath, and man has no advantage over the beast, for all is vanity. All go to one place. All are from the dust, and the dust all return. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth. That's the, that's the negativity of Solomon at the end of his life, having lived a pretty decadent lifestyle. Fortunately for us, we're going to, in a, just a couple of verses, get into a much po- more positive uh, view of, of reality. But for right now, this is a guarantee we have. Death is 100% 
guaranteed. This is the path, according to verse 13, of the foolish. Those who have foolish confidence, even though people who might come after them are approving of the boasts that they make. And then here comes this first of two occurrences of the word uh, selah. Let me just make a quick comment about that because you'll, you'll see this throughout the Psalms. You'll hear this throughout the Psalms this summer. It occurs twice in this Psalm. That term selah occurs actually 71 times in Psalms. And it's probably a, a signal for something to happen musically. It's probably the signal for uh, a musical interlude. For the singers to stop singing as the musicians keep strumming on their lyres and harps. Why? So that the audience can pause and can ponder the truth of what they've just heard. Taylor actually did that this morning as we were praying. He was strumming his guitar as we were confessing our, our, uh, our sins, our weaknesses to the Lord. That's what Selah means. So this is the first occurrence here in verse 13. He wants us to ponder this path that people are on. Now, the Bible is not against having wealth. It's not a, he's not a, the Bible is not against riches per se. In fact, the truth of the matter is, everyone in this room, everyone within the sound of my voice, is incredibly wealthy by the world standards. And if you've ever been to a third world developing country, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Just the fact that we have choices this morning, you know, that I, I chose to, to eat a bowl of Cheerios with milk. Debbie's not here right now, as opposed to her fixing an egg for me. Okay, that was my choice, right? That was my choice. The fact that I have choices is an, an incredible sign of wealth. The Bible's not against riches per se, but the Bible is against an attitude of self-sufficiency, an attitude of self-confidence that we have that's associated with our acquisition of wealth. That's, that's what the Bible is against. Not the money itself, but the attitude and the, the self-sufficiency that we think we have. Once again, I'm, I'm reminded of something Jesus says. And, and we want to always, whenever we can, we want to connect the Old Testament in a case like this, um, Psalm 49, we want to connect it to the truth of, of what Jesus says. In Luke chapter 12, he tells a parable of uh, the rich fool. Someone in the crowd poses a question, wants his brother to divide his inheritance with him, and Jesus warns him against be on your guard against covetousness. And then he says, these are Jesus' words, one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And then he tells this parable. The land of a rich man produced plentifully, and he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. I'll, I'll do this. I'll tear down my barns, and I'll build larger ones, and there I'll store all my grain and my goods, and I'll say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. And have that smiley face. But God is the very next two words. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you've prepared, whose will they be? Well, verse 14 then is quite dismal. It's a, it's a repeat of what happens at death. Like sheep, they're appointed for Sheol. Death becomes their shepherd. Actually, death feeds on them, consumes them, and with no place left to dwell. That's dismal. That's depressing. That's dreary. But it does set up the contrast that's about to occur in verse 15. Uh, again, though, what 
what the, the sons of Korah, the writers of this psalm, are encouraging us to do is that. They're encouraging us to pause, to ponder, to think seriously about these things. In verse 15, you'll notice the first two words are, but God. I, I, I love that. I, in fact, I'd love to do a whole series of sermons on the occurrences of that two-word phrase, but God. We have no fear. We have no fear of death. We have no fear of the arrogant rich who amass great wealth. Why? Because God will bring us to Himself. That's the main point of these last uh, five, five verses, six verses. It's, uh, as some commentators say, it's, it's like a mountaintop of Old Testament hope, this but God. It's in fact the gospel. The gospel is in this verse the gospel is in verse 15. Jesus, in, in fact, is in this verse. Whenever we preach or teach through an Old Testament passage, we're always on the lookout for the gospel of Jesus Christ, for the good news about um, our Redeemer. And in fact, that's what's happening here. Because notice, verse 15 says, God is, is what? He's going to ransom our soul. He's going to buy our soul back from the power of of Sheol, and it says also that he will receive me. He will receive us. Uh, a, a phrase that, that speaks, it, in fact, it was used at weddings when the, the new uh, groom husband would receive his bride to himself, uh, to take his bride as, as, his, as his wife. Um, that's exactly what what God is, is promising here, He's going to ransom our soul. That's the hope of the sons of Korah. Maybe they didn't have a complete understanding, not, certainly not the, the understanding we have. We have the benefit of looking back centuries uh, in reverse, so to speak, through God's Word to understand this. But they had this hope that God would ransom their soul from the power of death and that He, in fact, would receive them. David pens a parallel thought in Psalm 73 when he writes, You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. We have no fear because God will bring us to Himself. In verses 16 through 19, there's essentially a parallel to what has already been stated. So it's fascinating to me as a teacher that... Not only is there parallelism within each, almost all these individual verses, but there's even a parallel within the sections within this psalm. We're instructed to view worldly possessions through the lens of mortality, so we don't get caught up in this grand illusion of wealth and power and prominence. And then look at verse 20. Man in his pomp, and then there's a different phrase thrown in here. Yet without understanding is like the beast that perished. That without understanding very quickly, it, it connects us back to what we saw in the first four verses. In fact, the same word is used. The final purpose of this psalm is that all peoples might hear and might find the understanding that leads to life and not death. The difference between humans and beasts, which Solomon didn't understand in Ecclesiastes, the difference is lies in the degree of wisdom the degree of understanding that we have for us based on the truth of God's Word. If we don't have any understanding, then we're just like, uh, we're just like the beasts. 
But if, if we have a, an understanding of who we are as God defines us, of our own mortality, and especially of His character, then that changes the whole paradigm. Then we live, and we don't die like the beasts that perish. Let me make this very specific, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to end with this, because I want to connect it to the truth of God's Word in the New Testament. Now, I could have picked multiple verses out of the New Testament, but I've just picked, uh, p- picked five here, and I'll leave them up on the screen. You can jot them down. You can look at them later. I'm going to read portions from each one just to cement this in our thinking. This is the good news. This is the gospel that is referenced here in Psalm 49. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 to 20, says this, You are not your own. For you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. He has paid the ransom price. He is the one who has paid the price to redeem us to himself. We're not our own. He's bought us with a price. Ephesians 1.7, Paul writing to a, a different group of believers in the city of Ephesus writes, In him, that is Jesus, we have redemption through his blood. That ransom price has come at, at, at an, an eternal cost. The cost of Jesus' blood. And we've been redeemed as a result of that. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace. And it's almost as if uh, Peter doesn't want Paul to get all the glory here. So, so Peter r- ramps up and he, he, he talks about the same kind of thing. In First Peter chapter 1, he says, You were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. And then in chapter 3, Peter says, Christ has suffered once for our sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, so that he might, here's that phrase, bring us to God. God is going to receive us because it's because of Jesus and his, his work on the cross that brings us, in fact, to God. He brings us there. And there's, just in, in closing, these last two verses, Hebrews chapter 9, 27 and 28. Verse 27 declares the truth, what we've been talking about this morning. It is appointed unto man once to die, and after that comes judgment. And if, if the writer to Hebrews stopped at verse 27, it would sound like a whole lot like the end of uh, Psalm 49. It, pretty bleak, right? But fortunately, he goes on with verse 8. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time. Not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for Him. That's the truth of the gospel. That's the good news that's embedded in Psalm 49 and that's clarified in the New Testament. Let me just say this. If you're sitting here this morning and it's like, wow, I, I've never really heard it put quite that way. I, don't, I, don't quite, I didn't quite understand that, but I'd kind of like to learn more then please, don't let another day pass. I'll stay here as long as I need to today. Again, my bride's out of town, so i got nowhere to go. I'll stay here as long as necessary. I'd love to talk with you further about the reality of the certainty of death, the fact that we can't redeem ourselves, can't ransom ourselves, but that's been done. For those of you that already know that, that already embrace that reality, then by all means, brothers and sisters, let's grow into that reality. And as we grow into a a greater understanding of what Jesus has done for us, 
that we can face death. We can face the certainty of death, but we can do that because we've been redeemed. Then let's shout that from the mountaintops, right? Let's share that with our, our family members who don't yet know that reality. Let's, let's share that with that lost neighbor who's scuffling and struggling with uh, the end of the month and not enough, not enough paycheck to make it. Let's, let's share that with that coworker. Um, let's share that with even total strangers that we might um, encounter this week. The reality of uh, God's love for us, His desire to receive us to Himself because He's paid the price for us to get there. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, uh, it's hard not to be emotional about this. Lord, you've given us so many clear clues here in Psalm 49, but also throughout your word. We're just, we're in awe of who you are, your character. We're in awe that you would choose to love us the way You have. We're in awe that You sent Jesus, Your Son, sent Him to this world to live just like us, to live among us, and then to die for us. But not to stay there, but to conquer death through resurrection. And then, you've not only that, but You've also given us the indwelling of Your presence, Your Holy Spirit. We're in awe of all of that, Father, and we're just grateful. May You take these truths from Your Word, from Psalm 49 this morning, and drive them deep into our minds and hearts so that they might take root and bear fruit for Your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.